Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around, where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams, and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, we have Sir Menelaos Pangalos, Executive Vice President at AstraZeneca, and the young professional is Eleftheria Ledaki, Business Development Manager at Otolus. Thank you, Sir Menelaos Pangalos, for joining us on the Aristia podcast. It is an honor to have you here. You started off your career with a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology from Imperial College and a PhD in pharmacology of Alzheimer's disease and depression. What drove you to have a career in science? I was Look, I, I was um, probably best to start at school um, because at school, you know, a son of Greek parents, my my parents had two career, two possible careers for me: uh, to be a lawyer or to be a doctor. Um, those are the two choices that I had um, because that's all they really knew. My father was a captain, my mother was a housewife. They didn't really know anything else as expats living in in England. Um, and so I wanted to actually go to medical school when I was at school and I didn't get in. So I'm a, a failed medic in inverted commas. Um, and after I took my A-levels, I got my A-levels were good enough to get me into Imperial College. And, and then I did the biochemistry degree. And it's interesting because at school, whilst I enjoyed science, I would say I wasn't a particularly good student. And I was OK, um, but I loved biology. And when I went to university, it was the first time that I really found that I enjoyed something. And I really enjoyed my biochemistry degree. I really enjoyed the way you learned at university. It was more independent, more autonomous, you know, and, and, and you could do it in your own time. And so I suddenly found myself flourishing and doing very, very well. And by the end of my university degree, Um, and I'd done a lot of neuroscience units at my university degree, I realized that actually, you know, maybe I'm quite good at this. And so I carried on and did a PhD. And I was very lucky when I did my PhD. Um, the, the laboratory that I did my PhD in, which is the Institute of Neurology, it was my academic supervisor, was a very, very famous professor called Professor David Bowen. He was the person that identified one of the deficits in Alzheimer's disease that actually laid the foundations for the first drugs for Alzheimer's disease. But because of the type of research that he did in his laboratory, he was sponsored by quite a few drug companies. And so I, I was also sponsored for my PhD by Merck. And so I got my first experience of actually what it's like to do drug discovery or applied research when I was doing my PhD. And during my PhD, I realized that actually what I really wanted to do was try and turn science into medicine, is actually apply research, not just for the sake of doing good research, but actually because it's useful um, and useful in the way of, you know, discovering medicines. And so my industrial supervisor was also fantastic and, and looked after me very well. I called Professor um, Derek Middlemiss. He said to me, many 
go and do a postdoc somewhere outside the UK, right? So you experience a new culture and something different. And once you've done that, the world will be yours. You can go and do whatever you want. You can go back to medical school. You can go and get a job in industry and academia. So I went off to New York um, to work for another professor, Greek professor at this time called, called Nick Rabakis, working also on Alzheimer's disease. And I had four wonderful years in New York, in Manhattan. Um, and through all of that experience, um, you know, I think, you know, my scientific training was very good. I was doing different things all through my academic training. So I was becoming broader rather than just deeper. Um, and I, I basically went on a journey where actually I no longer wanted to go to medical school. And now I wanted to be an applied scientist, you know, and, and really thinking about how to get myself back into drug discovery. And from New York. I, I then applied for a job at Johnson and Johnson in Belgium, and I went and worked in in, in Belgium in Antwerp for what was then Janssen Pharmaceutica, um, and that's kind of, kind of how my industrial career started. But through all that, there's a couple of messages. One is um, to not to persevere, to not to not be put off by failure. The fact that I wasn't particularly successful at school and I didn't get into medical school, a lot of people would have, you know would have maybe stopped or given up or and I kind of just changed direction but in a good direction actually one that ended up being you know much much better for me I think I've had a much more successful career probably because of the journey that I've been that if I'd gone straight into medical school um, and then the other piece was just the adventure of, of experiencing different cultures and different things and pushing myself and that's a little bit the journey of, of my career um, and I, I would say and if you advice to young people at the beginning of their careers is it's very easy to get comfortable, right? You can be in a lab and you can be doing really well. You can be publishing good papers and, you know, focusing on one technique. But um, the more you push yourself into areas of discomfort, and if you just if you look at my career, you know, going from the UK to New York, going from New York to Belgium, and then actually going... After I went to Janssen, I then went back to the UK and worked for SmithKline Beecham, which became GlaxoSmithKline. Had a very successful career there, became head of neurodegeneration, so starting to run groups of 150, 200 people. It would have been very easy to stay there. But then I got a call from the US to say, do you want to come and run a big neuroscience division? And even though GSK wanted me to stay and it would have been easy to stay, I decided to actually take an, a next step and, and push myself and go back to America, and then I spent seven years at Wyeth, which became Pfizer. was very comfortable there, got an even more senior job there, became head of research, and then I got my offer at AstraZeneca. Again, it would have been very easy to stay. Just had two kids. We were all happy and settled in a new home, um, but decided actually that the new, the new adventure would have been pushing me again even harder. And so I would just say, Try and challenge yourselves wherever you are in your career. Always ask you, don't, don't ever become settled. Don't ever become bored with what you're doing or comfortable. You need to be thinking about how to challenge yourself every year or every few years so that you're learning something new, experience something new. Because all of those experiences enrich you as a leader, as a scientist, as a person. Um, and then I think make it easier for you to be successful in whatever you do.
I think that, that this message is actually really important. Do you think it also applies um, when researchers do their own research? So it may be a bit hard um, when they're facing obstacles in their daily experimental life and when getting funding in competitive fields. Is this something that they need to think of on a daily basis and obviously be updated with, their, with the research area that they're working in and speaking yes. to I mean, look, I mean, especially if you're a researcher in Greece, I mean, you have to be exceptionally resilient, right? Funding is, I know, very difficult, and it's one of the things that has to improve in Greece if Greece is going to be competitive in, in, in the research and development and life sciences area, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But I think being resilient and pushing yourself to learn new things, you, you have two choices in a scientific career, right? You can become a deep, deep content expert in a very focused area. And you can be very successful doing that. Um, and, and you still have all of the challenges of getting funding and keeping yourself current and topical and working out how to expand within that envelope, but in a more specialized area. In, in my line of work, breadth is often a good thing. Right? If you think about the types of things that I have to do now, running a research and development organization, I have to be able to speak to chemists, I have to be able to speak to business people, I have to be able to speak to politicians, physicians, scientists across diabetes, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, COVID. It's very, very broad, right? And the way you can handle that level of breadth and be able to have sensible conversations and challenge your organization to continue to improve is by not being so focused on one, being good at one thing, but being good generally at a few things so that you can have those conversations. And so that there's, um, there's, there's, there's a choice in people's career, right? You can become, you can go and become a deep molecular biologist or you can become a molecular biologist with pharmacology and genomics experience, right? So from my perspective, I like it when I see people that have tried different things and have shown that they can learn and adapt to different types of work because it shows me that they're flexible and also have a certain um, um, intelligence, intelligent flexibility in terms of being able to do different things. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be very, very successful being focused in one or two areas, but I would say as you move and become more senior in an organisation, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry, that breadth is often quite a useful thing. In terms of the neuroscience field itself, where you have led executive roles in Wyeth and Pfizer, and you have supported discovery to proof of concept and also the clinical trial part, so you are an expert in that area. Um, even though we have seen a lot of funding and resources put um, into psychiatric disease and other types of diseases, we still feel that there is a high unmet therapeutic need. Do you see the field changing towards more human-based research, especially in light of all the omics uh, innovations that are out there? Yeah. What can be done to, for more therapeutics to, to reach clinical trials and potentially be successful as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And neuro, I mean, it's very interesting because neuroscience is an area, like many areas of, of, of science and, and, and research, that, that, that has had its ups and downs. So when I was doing neuroscience, when I started my career, and you know, I did my PhD in 1992, and then my neuroscience career in inverted commas was really up until 2010. Um, I would say 
neuroscience was very in vogue in the early 2000s. A lot of people were putting a lot of money in Alzheimer's disease and neuropsychiatric research. Um, having previously got out of neuroscience, there'd been a lot of people have been in, in the 1990s, a lot of people have been interested in stroke um, and in neurological disorders and neuropsychiatric disorders as well, but there'd been some quite big failures, some quite big phase three failures. And for those of you that don't know about drug development, you know, the cost of developing a drug when you put in all the failures, you know, is two, three, four billion dollars, you know, it's many billions of dollars, right? It's a very expensive business and endeavor because as an industry, we fail a lot, right? The success rate going from first in humans to launching a medicine um, on average is about 8%, 6 to 8%. Um, so if you think about it as, a, as an R&D scientist in a company, you fail much, much more than you succeed, right? You fail, you know, 94% of the time and you succeed 6% of the time. Um, and of course, all of those failures, particularly if you have them late stage in, in, in late stage development, in the big phase three trials with thousands of patients, those are very, very expensive, several hundred million dollar studies. And what happened in the 1990s was quite a few big phase three failures from a few different companies. And that made a lot of senior executives at the time very scared of neuroscience and they pulled out. Now, when I was you know, in the mid 1990s, 2000s, people were starting to get back in because of the unmet need. You know, Alzheimer's disease, as you know, is what you know one of the most common neurological disorders. It becomes, you know, incredibly common as we get older. Um, you know, when you get into your 70s, 80s, 90s, it's a it's a very common disease and obviously has a huge economic burden um, on countries around the world in terms of caring for our elderly populations. And the same is true of mental illness, the same is true of other neurological illnesses. So what I'm seeing now is a lot of people have got out of neuroscience and they're now again getting back in. And they're getting back in because the unmet need has continued to be very, very high. Right. And as the population ages, we see more and more people suffering from neurological and neuropsychiatric illnesses. But what I think is important is with the advent of genomics, as you've talked about, um, and a better understanding of some of these diseases, it's becoming easier to come up with targets for drug discovery that have maybe a higher probability of being successful. Um, and also the regulators are becoming a little bit more flexible and a little bit more helpful because they're realizing that this is a very high cost burden to economies around the world and there remains a very high on their medical need. So Neuroscience, I think, was up, it went down, it went up, it went down. We're now, I think, on back on the up in terms of people wanting to invest in neuroscience and um, um, neurology and neuropsychiatric indications. I think there's a lot more focus on genetically validated diseases where there's you know, genetic linkage and therefore you can go after very specific subsets of patients. But also, you know, there's a continued understanding of the unmet need and of the fact that there is you know a huge opportunity if, if anyone can you know can make a significant breakthrough in some of these diseases i'm glad to hear that is actually picking up and um, i feel that having r&d centers that run drug discovery programs are really important as well and astrazeneca has created a really big R&D center in one of the top universities in the world as well. And I have seen the pictures and I have seen the See, media. You can see the graphic behind me. That's it. Yes. 
<laughs> but I'm going to change my background. I'm going to put a real one on so you can actually see the real thing. <laughs> that would look amazing. Um, I wanted to to kind of touch upon your Greek uh, genetic background and ask your view on um, how how do you feel that R&D in Greece is at the moment and how should we consider building better infrastructure across the public and private sectors to, to get an investment like that and have our own R&D centre? I think the things that have to fundamentally change in Greece in order for us to have a successful life sciences sector is the most important thing is funding, funding from the government. And if you think about, you know, in the UK or the US, you know, the equivalents of the Medical Research Council or the BBSRC or the Wellcome Trust or the NIH, um, there are um, there's just very robust funding here in in the um, in, in the UK and the US and other countries around Europe, which actually enable them to have very high caliber academic institutions that can compete globally. And it is a global competition. And what I would say COVID has done actually is emphasised to all countries around the world the importance of having both a good life sciences sector and a good life sciences manufacturing capability. Um, and so, as you can imagine, many countries now around the world are trying to think about um, how they improve that. The other piece is you know, eliminating bureaucracy, making sure that the process is unbiased. You know, it's really based on merit, not on politics or something else. Those are the types of things that I think, again, are a little bit more difficult in some countries um, and where I think if you can create you know, a high caliber of, of trust, responsibility in terms of the way the funding is distributed, the way it's reviewed, the elimination of excess bureaucracy, the elimination of bias, and so that you're really funding the right stuff. I think it's very, very important. And then there are things you can do around tax incentives and other things that just make it a more attractive place to invest in. But first and foremost, you need to have a good funding source that's stable, that is regular, that happens every year, that doesn't change from government to government, and that doesn't have the bias of politics and, you know, all of the things that we know, you know, happen in Greece um, in terms of bureaucracy and, you know, and funding the wrong things. Um, I wanted to touch a bit upon the controversial subject of the past couple of years, which is the pandemic, uh, and ask a couple of questions about that. And as you mentioned, there, there has been an unforeseen effort by biopharmaceuticals bio, bio and AstraZeneca as well to, to create medicine that will actually help and are safer um, for patients. Um, but there has been you know, a tremendous effort to have a number of vaccinations. And I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that the regular vaccinations, such as a fourth vaccination campaign, will be needed? or? Are we moving on with the science and at some point we could have one vaccine dose for life, such as, you know, the, the annual one that we do for? Well, so that, so one, goodness, well, I think the honest answer is it's too soon to tell. Do I think it's going to be one vaccine for life? No, I don't think it's going to be one vaccine for life because I think if you look at viruses like flu, we get vaccinated every year. Um, I think the frequency of vaccination is going to be important to determine. I don't think we know that yet. I think, thankfully, people are starting to move away from thinking about these vaccines as vaccines that 
create sterilizing immunity. And by sterilizing immunity, I mean is that you get vaccinated and you become completely immune to getting any symptoms or in being able to pass on the virus. I just don't think that's realistic. And I don't think that's what any of these vaccines do. And I think, you know, people were hoping the mRNA vaccines would do that, but there was no way they were ever going to do that. You know, you get, you know, high antibody levels for a period of time and they may protect you from symptomatic illness and even um, spreading the virus for a short period of time, but definitely not for a prolonged period of time. And I think people are coming to realize that now. The most important thing, and this is something that we've been saying at AstraZeneca from the beginning, and we've been saying it because our vaccine induces a very good immune response, and it, but it doesn't generate the levels of antibodies that the mRNAs does, but it generates a very good cellular immune response, T-cell response. And what we've seen is that our vaccine does protect for prolonged periods of time against severe disease, hospitalization and death, as do the mRNAs. And that's really what you care about. What you care about is that people don't get really sick. You don't really mind so much if people have a cough or a runny nose or a temperature for a few days and they stay at home like they do with the flu or a bad cold. What you care about is our intensive care you know, units becoming full and our health services coming to a standstill because it's full of COVID patients. And what the vaccines have done is they've removed, I think, that risk from large proportions of the population. Um, and so whether we need to vaccinate people once a year, like we do with flu or once every few, we're going to need to find out. What I think we need to move away from is this sort of um, alarmist vaccination that you know your antibody levels have gone down and therefore you have to vaccinate everyone straight away because I just don't think that's the right thing to do. So I think we need to be worrying about severe disease and hospitalization and when you start to see that wane or, or, or decrease in terms of protection that's the time when I think you need to start vaccinating again. Exactly and do you think that the prophylactic vaccines and antiviral treatments will be helpful as well? Well, so prophylactic, I mean, the vaccines we have are prophylactic vaccines. Yeah. That's what they do. I think there's a significant number of people that don't respond well to vaccines. Right. So, for example, if you're a, a cancer patient on chemotherapy, if you're a, a lupus patient on chronic immune suppression, if you have an illness that basically means that your immune system is dampened down, is reduced or not or not working as well as it should, quite a few of those patients don't respond well to the vaccination. They, they can get vaccinated, but actually they generate a very poor immune response to the vaccine. In those patients, I think something other than the vaccine needs to be used. And I'll give you an example of the therapy that we've created that's now approved in many countries around um, Europe and in the US. Um, it's it's a, a, an antibody cocktail um, called AZD7442. Um, and it's a combination of two antibodies that basically give people their immune response by giving them an injection of antibodies. And what this does is it protects people that don't have a good immune response from a vaccine. And it gives them their own antibodies that will ho hopefully prevent them from getting sick and being able to re-enter the community. And, and it's incredibly important because as countries come out of lockdown, as we become freer because we're all vaccinated, and we wear, you know, fewer people wear masks and shops are open and sporting venues are open and everyone's, you know, and schools are open and kids are coming home as my kids do with COVID and we're all catching it. I've thankfully not caught it yet, but my wife has. 
those, so we're all protected through vaccination. But if you're a chemotherapy patient or a cancer patient with a suppressed immune system, you're even more locked up now than you were during lockdown because everyone else is out and about trying to live a normal life. And so you're even more vulnerable than you were before. So these people do need protection. And I think um, therapies like our antibody treatment will help protect those people and enable them to come out of lockdown as well and lead a more normal life. Um, once you mentioned the collaboration with uh, the Oxford University, I can touch a bit um, on the innovation side of things and uh, because uh, collaborations with academia and um, companies have actually brought to light a lot of medicines that have helped patients. Uh, how, how useful would you say that open innovation is nowadays? And you run an open innovation program in which academic institutions can work with AstraZeneca to discover and develop new therapies. Is, do you think this is a way for academia to actually get access to resources that they lack? Oh, for sure. Right? And, and look, I think when I first joined AstraZeneca, <clears throat> we were a very inwardly looking company. Right? I, I like to use sporting analogies every now and again, particularly when I talk to, 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 to my group. Um, and when you're very inwardly looking, if you like sport, the analogy is um, you get very excited about personal bests, right? the best that you've ever done. But of course, if your personal bests are not getting you to the Olympics or not getting you to the World Cup, that they're not any good, right? So we've moved from being an inwardly looking organization to being one much more that is externally focused. Um, and by being externally focused, you move from thinking about personal bests to world records. And the only way you set world records is if you're working with smart people within your company, but even smarter people outside of your company. Right, because the world is a very big place and there's a lot of very smart people all over the world. And so having um, an open or what I call porous collaboration, collaborative culture, which is why we're in Cambridge. Right. The whole point is we want to be able to interact, engage and collaborate with the best people in our areas. And Cambridge is one of those places where there's lots of those really smart people. But it's the, true in many other countries around the world. And so the things that we've tried to do but to create tools and opportunities for the external world, the external brain of the world, to collaborate and partner with us in the way that they benefit and we benefit. And it really needs to be symbiotic. It can't just us be, be us taking things. It also needs to be us giving things. And that's what we've tried to do with the Open Innovation. We make our compounds available. We make funding available. Um, we fund postdocs and PhD students. And we try and work with the very best people wherever they may be that help us turn science and medicine, help us understand diseases better, help us turn an idea into something that can be applied to a drug discovery program that can ultimately make a difference and, and, and de deliver a medicine to a patient that can make a big difference to, to someone. Exactly. And speaking about um, great people and uh, outstanding individuals, you, you also have a postdoc program. Um, what would you advise a young scientist that want to pursue a career in biopharma and what would you say are the core elements of the talent of the people that you aspire to hire and what difference will they find working in a company rather than in an academic environment? Yes, so we have a very, um, a very vibrant postdoc program and we get several thousand applications every year for, you know, a, a few, you know, 
10 to 50 places a year. So it's, you know, it's, it's competitive. All we look for is bright, well-balanced, smart, you know, interesting people. Um, and I would say, you know, what do people get from doing a postdoc in, in industry? Um, they get experience to doing applied research. Right? All of the all of the research, all of the postdocs that we bring into the company also have an academic supervisor, so they all have a partnership with a university somewhere in the world. Um, but importantly, we help them learn and understand not just you know about a, a disease area or the basic research around they're working on, but you know we give them an experience of what it's like working in a drug discovery company. They get to see research on a more applied level, and even though we very much want them to publish their work and we very much want to do, you know, breakthrough research. They will, because they're working in a company, see, like I did when I was doing a postdoc and a PhD in industry, what it's like and what it takes to discover medicines. Um, and, and it's very, very different to, to basic academic research. And so that's the experience they will get. Obviously, you know, the opportunity is we're a we're a, we're a big organization. We have R&D sites in Sweden, in the UK, in China, in the US. And so there's a lot of opportunities in terms of the different places you can be and the different areas that you can work in. But ultimately, what we look for is, you know, bright, smart people, you know, energy, enthusiasm, you know, an interest in, an interest in what I said, to, ch- to challenge themselves and to take risks. Um, and ultimately to just be, you know, motivated to do well um, in whatever area they work in. Exactly. Those values and expertise that you have developed, um, based on those, you got awarded a knighthood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and may I say this correctly, a knighthood in the UK honours list by Her Majesty the Queen of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland for mm-hmm. your services to the UK science. Uh, I find this both an honour and a responsibility. How much has this honor affected your scientific habitat and driving for life science reform? Uh, it hasn't really changed my, it hasn't changed me or my habitat at all. My, my daughters tease me more than they did about it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It was lovely to go to, to Windsor Castle and, um, and, and get the knighthood. And it's a, it's a fantastic honor and I'm super proud and my mother is super proud. But the reality is that I do I do what I do, right? You know, it gives me a little bit more influence um in the UK. But the reality is in the job that I have now and that I've had you know since two thousand ten, it's one of the most important industry jobs in the country in terms of life sciences. And so, you know, I, I, I am lucky that I have influence and that people listen to what we say because I think we're a good company, we're a strong company and we have useful things that can actually help the UK be successful and Sweden and, uh, and and the US and so with that with that responsibility with that role comes a responsibility to think about developing you know the next generation of talent about making sure that countries and governments understand the challenges of our industry and what it takes to develop medicines I can tell you during COVID that's been a massive education for a lot of politicians and still is um, and it's, so, you know, I don't think it's changed me uh, at all. My wife might say differently, but I don't, I don't think it's changed me. I'm just super proud and, and happy and, and just carry on doing what I know. I think it's a, a sign that what I've been doing has been OK and I need to carry on doing it and, and, and not stop. 
and I'm sure we'll see more from yourself in the coming years. Um, I wanted to thank you for being with us today, and I want to ask you one of our last and favorite questions of the Aristia podcast, and that is, if you were in a perfect setting, what's your favorite place to invite two guests and who? What would you love to be served? And what's the favorite song that would play on the background? Oh, goodness gracious, that's a difficult question. Um, so, where would I be? Um, anywhere by the sea, I have to say, and I would say preferably a Greek sea. Um, so I'd love to be on one of my favorite beaches at a table in, in, in Chios, right? Listening to the ocean coming in and then a taverna where I can have a, a nice grilled fish and some sakhanaiki and, um, and, uh, a glass of, um, Varelisio Grassi. Um, I think that would be, that would be, I think, my, um, my favorite, my favorite place. I think, um, If I had to choose people to be with, honestly, if I had to choose um, who I'd want to be, which is going to be boring for you, it wouldn't be two people, it'd be three people. It'd be my wife and my two children, right? But if you want some interesting people, more interesting than that, because those are, those are just the people I love being with, right? I just love being with them wherever I am. And, um, and yeah, I'm not, uh, and if I didn't say that, my wife would get very upset if she ever sees this podcast. So, <laughs> but If you want sort of more uh, desert island this people, who would I pick? I'd pick someone like um, Nelson Mandela, because um, I just think the experiences that he's had and the way he's transformed a country and the resilience he's shown and his ability to I just this just I think is an incredible, incredible human being. And I would just love to hear some of that experience. And then. Um, Maybe, oh, who else? Someone like, um, someone like Tom Hanks. Just some, yeah. someone, you know, someone who's going to actually, and Tom Hanks actually, I think is a, he's married to a Greek, he has a Greek wife actually, and so I think he loves Greece as well. But just, you know, the experiences he's had meeting a lot of very different people and working in Hollywood and being in movies, that, that I think would be an interesting, and he seems like a very nice, genuine man whenever you hear him, um, interviewed. In terms of what I've listened to, I have a very eclectic musical taste. Um, I listen to all sorts of stuff. One of my favorite summer songs, because I'd be in the summer, which is quite, is, um, I don't know if you've heard, there's a, there's a guy called Michael Kiwanuka, who did a, has done an amazing album from a few years ago, and there's a song on there called Cold Little Heart. Oh, um, I love the song. Which I absolutely love, and I just love it in the background, because it's, it's almost like a pop symphony, right? Yeah. It has all different phases in it, and so... It takes you to all sorts of different places. So it's a setting sun in a taverna, right, under a tree, on a on a beach in Greece, um, with either my family or Nelson Mandela and Tom Hanks. <laughs> Thank you. Did you ever fight it? All of the pain, so much proud.
huge thank you to Sir Menelaos Pangalos, Executive Vice President at AstraZeneca, and Eleftheria Ledaki, Business Development Manager at Otolus. For this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence. Thank you.